0: Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is with me as always. This is our second episode for the week. Uh, We did our question of the week episode yesterday in which we did a sort of focus on three key topics from Mary Meeker's internet trends presentation uh, that came out this week at the code conference. So this is our news roundup episode and we have three major sort of topics or groups of topics for you. Uh, First off, we're gonna talk about the announcement of the essential phone uh, by Andy Rubin and his company. Secondly, we will talk about uh, the Nest Cam IQ, the latest indoor security camera from uh, Nest and Alphabet. And then thirdly, we're going to do what we sometimes do, which is a sort of a roundup of Apple news. Nothing that was so significant that it felt like we needed to spend sort of 10 minutes on it, but there's a few things that are worth mentioning, at least briefly. So we'll be talking about a few bits of Apple news in the sort of last third of the episode. Uh, so let's kick off with the essential phone announcement. This is Andy Rubin, of course, the founder of Android, which was subsequently then acquired by Google and where he ran Android for a long time, previously uh, was a phone guy. He had uh, led a company called Danger, which made Sidekick devices, which were these um, keyboarded phones before smartphones really took off in the U.S., primarily on T-Mobile and some other, uh, some other carriers um, for messaging. Principally, so he was a hardware guy uh, before he started Android, and then um, obviously went to Google for a long time, left, and has done various bits and pieces in robotics and so on, Um, and now is back with what he calls the essential phone. That's actually the name of the phone, Um, and uh, it was announced this week uh, and uh, shown off very briefly in minor detail at the Code Conference um, run by Recode, and. Alongside the phone, there were some other bits and pieces, um, such as something called Ambient OS, which is a sort of operating system for the home. Not quite clear whether it really is an operating system or if it's just more of the UI that sits on top of an operating system. Uh, That's one of many details that still seems somewhat unclear at this point. The intention here, though, seems to be to build an ecosystem both around this phone uh, with sort of modules that can bolt onto it, and uh, Essential has one of its own, which is a 360-degree camera, and then also to build an ecosystem of other services and so on that will integrate with that smart home OS and, and sort of a device hub uh, that's gonna be part of that, which is sort of like a screened version of a Google Home or Amazon Echo. So a bunch of stuff that was announced there. Um, Aaron, I, I have plenty of thoughts on this, but I wanna give you some time to talk uh, before <laughs> I rant about it.
1: Sure, well, I know you're a skeptic of it. Um, I don't know, I, you know, it's, it's interesting um, I, I I think, uh, you know, the reviews, uh, the sort of pre-reviews that came out of it, people who were able to get hands-on seemed to think that it was, a, I, I don't know. I mean, nobody was, like, gushing about it, which I think is the thing to be most nervous about if you're Andy Rubin. Like, nobody was saying, oh, finally our savior is coming to the Android right. space and fixed everything. And I think that's the biggest problem because that's his kind of whole angle on this. Is that he's offering an Android phone that fixes all these problems with the Android ecosystem and the phones that are you know that that make it up and he and nobody has reacted in the way that he's sort of promising right um and so that's the reason to be to to feel anxious if you're him though from what i've read it sounds like it sounds like essential is a pretty heavily capitalized company. Yes. And so, yeah. exactly. And so I think they're going to be in it for the long haul, but that doesn't guarantee it's not going to be a huge flame out. We'll have to see how sales go. Um, but uh, it's going to depend on all kinds of things, like how much carriers are pushing it, because that has a huge influence on how well Android phones tend to do. Um, uh, the whole ecosystem idea that he is making a big deal out of is going to be something that other uh, third-party companies will have to jump onto, and they're not going to do that unless they see compelling sales. There's very much a chicken and egg problem with what I think he's trying to accomplish. And one approach is to throw lots of money at it, but uh, what we know from history, even recent history, is uh, like with the eco, is that doesn't right. always work. So yeah, I don't yeah. know. We'll have to see.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, I'm I am very skeptical of it, and I, I wrote this up for tech narratives this week and. What I, what I felt was this is sort of we've seen this story before, you know, and you mentioned the eco and that's, you know, slightly different rally proposition, but it, it also obviously pitching an ecosystem coming in as a new player threatening to disrupt things. But, you know, the pattern here has become fairly clear over time. You set up a set of sort of effectively straw man arguments about the powerless state of the smartphone industry and then you promise to solve them. Um, and I, I think the fact is that the smartphone industry doesn't seem in that parlous state at the moment. It seems like it's doing fine. We've got lots of options from lots of companies, seeing some real innovation in screen design, and you know these kind of edge-to-edge screens that we're seeing now from major players. Uh, you know, amazing advancements in photography and cameras. You know, I think even the issues that exist around Android uh, have been somewhat resolved. I think you know some of the major OEMs, notably Samsung, have dialled back on some of their more over-the-top customizations uh, you've obviously got uh, the pixel out there from Google now if you prefer a stock Android experience on pretty nice hardware um, you know it just really doesn't feel like there are these massive issues in the smartphone industry that need somebody to come along and save them um, you know some of the things Ruben's talked about specifically was being forced to have a lot of apps you didn't want well that's kind of true for Android with some OEMs and carriers It's less true in some cases than it has been in the past. It's not true for the iPhone, you know. I mean, the iPhone doesn't come with a bunch of extra stuff. And even some of the stuff that Apple ships with it now, you can delete or at least hide. So, you know, just a lot of the big arguments he was making just feel like they might have been relevant a few years back but are less relevant today. But then I think the other side of my skepticism about all of this is there's very little there right now in terms of what was actually shown off. I mean, it was mostly hardware. And it's, you know, anybody to some extent can design beautiful-looking hardware. It's really not that hard to do at this point. Um, you know, the, the basic form factor has been set for ages now. It's clear that you'd want to do a screen that covers most of the front of the device. I'm not a huge fan of the little dip around the front-facing camera Yeah. Uh, in the screen. It, that doesn't feel like a great design element. But, you know, you have to deal with those issues somehow. Um, but just, you know, the software has not really been detailed. It's Android in fairly stock fashion, apparently, so there's nothing special there as such. Um, You know, it's it's running in Google Play services and Google mobile services, so there's not that much flexibility in terms of deleting those apps. So, again, kind of what's the unique value proposition here versus, say, the Pixel. Um, And then the ecosystem's, you know, a nice idea, but it doesn't exist. It's a single add-on modular device for now. There is some vague stuff about the Home Hub and an operating system, but that hasn't been fleshed out either. Um, You know, he was talking about integration with Siri, but seem to be talking about Siri actually being built into the device, which obviously isn't going to happen. So it's just a bunch of st- stuff here, which feels pretty airy-fairy, feels aspirational in many cases, feels pretty insubstantial. And the whole thing just feels like they they're, they're, their marketing strategy in some ways is brilliant because you've got Andy Rubin, who's going to get a bunch of attention for something that probably wouldn't have got that much attention otherwise, frankly, because it's Andy yeah. Rubin, it is. Um, but, you know, this is the sort of pre-launch where there's really nothing much to show yet. Uh, And then they'll have individual launches with the specific products during the course of the next few months. They'll get big buzz every time because it's Andy Rubin and, you know, lots of attention. But again, as you say, I think without carrier distribution, without, you know, other retail distribution, without a brand in the US, you know, we know who Andy Rubin is and a lot of other techies do, but it's not a mass market proposition to to base a company on the appeal of Andy Rubin. Nobody knows who he is in the real world. So, you know, it just doesn't feel like there's much there that can support this kind of a launch and, and have any kind of success off the back of it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you have said. I, <clears throat> I um, you know, the the thing is, this is, the, the whole stock Android thing appeals to a pretty narrow set of Android users, <clears throat> and that, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the fundamental sort of value proposition on the phone side, is it saying, here's a clean um, use of uh, a, a, a Android. Well, Google's been doing that for a while, and and you know granted they don't market it like crazy but it also doesn't sell like crazy based on the proposition alone there's a core set of people who love google stock phones um but uh you know they don't do much with it i don't think it's really clear that Andy rubin has the what's the word i'm looking for here has the right mix of attributes Mm -hmm. to be like a Steve jobs in this space. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? I, I just, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's true. I think he, he's an ideologue just like Steve jobs was, but he is in ways that I think are off putting rather than, um, necessarily even user friendly. Um, right. and so, um, yeah, I don't think it's obvious at all that he's got the start. I mean, he obviously doesn't have the notoriety outside mm-hmm. of sort of certain tech circles, but as a personality, I just don't think he has the stop, star power to draw people in. The, right. Like being the personality behind this whole thing. So
0: Yeah. No, agreed. Anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we were of the same mind about it. I yeah, guess we'll it see. Like it's, it. The phone is is less than a month away, right? Isn't it supposed to come out sometime in June? Is that what I read?
0: Oh, yeah. I didn't see specific timing on it, but you may be right. Yeah. You can certainly yeah. pre-order it already, which is remarkable given how little people will know about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and you can, yeah, it comes with a discounted 360 degree camera relative to the final price of that as well. One last thought on this before we move on. Um, obviously, you know, Andy Rubin's based here in the US and co founders presumably from the US as well, even though some of the backers are from overseas. But I, I, I can't help but think this might actually do better somewhere else. Um, you know, if I think of hmm. OnePlus, which is another example of a similar strategy, you know, sort of fairly pure Android phone, nice design, really hasn't done anything meaningful here in the US. What I saw to some numbers yesterday, um, that it's the most popular device on. There's a major Finnish mobile operator called Elisa, so in Finland, um, you know, it's their number one device for consumers anyway. You know, different for corporate buyers, but for consumers, that one one of the OnePlus devices is their number one device above iPhone and Samsung. And you know, it's notable that Huawei does very well in Finland at this point too. And you know, arguably Nokia's death has kind of left a vacuum there that's been filled by all kinds of interesting other stuff. But the point being. The U.S. is an unusually closed market. It's dominated by the carrier distribution model. Those carriers are very closed to new device vendors coming in just because how tightly the service is integrated with the devices in terms of the whole sales process. And so I can't help but think this would actually do better if it started in other markets, or at least if they focused on other markets, whereas their actual strategy seems to be U.S. only for now and then only later going to other markets. So um, that's one last little throwaway thought there. Yeah, I could see Um, that. Second topic we're going to talk about is Nest uh, announcing the Cam IQ, which is their latest uh, security-focused indoor camera. Uh, and you know, Nest basically has three product lines. Uh, they have the original thermostats that they launched with. They have the second product line that they launched organically, which is smoke and um, carbon monoxide detectors. And then they have um, the cameras that they acquired from Dropcam, um, right around the time that they were also acquired by Google. Um, and the cameras are really the only line that's had any real action over the last 18 months or so, and um, this is a sort of big upgrade on the previous version of their indoor camera, which seems to be still on sale, so I think they're going to do a sort of two-tier approach, at least for now. The main focus here is sort of added intelligence, Um, So, you know, yes, there are sort of added, you know, uh, or rather improved specs in the device as well. But a lot of it's about what they do with those specs. and That was really interesting. This is a point you were making, Aaron, before we started recording. So I'll let you uh, talk about that a little bit first.
1: Well, I just am fascinated that the AI um, uh, features baked into this are, are not in the vein of where all the AI in the home attention has been going. I mean, obviously, you know, Google with its home device and Amazon with the, um, you know, with the Echo, they've gotten all the attention about bringing AI into the home. And it's all been through this idea of having an assistant, a smart assistant to do various things for you, whether it's reporting on the weather or bringing up music or telling you if the clothes you're wearing are ugly, right? It's all, I mean, it's all based on this idea of, a, of an artificially intelligent assistant sort of enhancing your home. I think what's cool about this is this is a totally different angle on where AI can make a difference. And the the facial recognition thing, being able to distinguish between people and pets, some of these were features that were already available in the subscription product that Nest was offering that went with their other cams. But but the point is, this camera was clearly built. I mean, it's got a six-core process, six processor in it. Um, this camera was clearly built in a way to enhance... Um, artificial intelligence in the home for security and monitoring purposes. And I think that's really cool. And I think it kind of gives a sense of the, the idea that there are a lot of places still in the home where artificial intelligence can make a really meaningful contribution that aren't about having some assistant that you have conversations with because that's where the focus seems to be on the smart home idea is that you got devices that can be controlled by your phone or an assistant this is a totally different angle this is this is monitoring your home in a way that um, can give you smart alerts, for example, if it detects a face that's not one that it recognizes in your house. Those are, that's a cool idea. And I think there's a lot of room for that kind of thing. So I think that's what makes this the most notable. Um, I'm a little, I, I, I don't know, I can't say I'm shocked by the, by the price point, but $300 is pretty high to enter yeah. into to, to this kind of a product, especially because, um, you know, all the neat features require a monthly subscription. Uh, right. And also, if you buy a two-pack, it's only $500. So they're already chopping $100 off a price of two, which tells me that they're, they're, I think they're probably overpricing a single one here. Um, and also, it seems like you know, Nest has a much brighter future. And you've said this before. Nest has a much brighter future in subscriptions. And so a $300 price point to get into a subscription model just seems really high to me. But, but everything yeah. else I think is cool.
0: Yeah, no, it, it does seem like a cool device. And I think it's notable for being the first big advance from Nest in probably a good couple of years on any of its devices. Everything else has felt pretty incremental until now. And so this feels like it's Nest maybe getting unstuck a little bit after yeah, a couple of years of sort of malaise. Um, and they've said there's more coming, and they haven't been specific about whether that means more cameras or other products or, or completely new product lines, which would be the most interesting because they haven't had another one of those for, for several years now. Um But, yeah, it it seems like a sign that things are actually moving there, that they are able to innovate still and create some really interesting new value. Um, But, yeah, I I think the fundamental problem, we had a deep dive episode on the smart home a while back um, in which I kind of articulated my thesis about the smart home, which is I think the services model is the one that ultimately wins um, for several reasons. One is upfront cost can be bundled into the subscription rather than being an outlay of massive amounts of cash up front. Uh, a lot of people are going to want installation and then management and break-fix capability as well. Uh, and so services are going to be the way to go, and that means that you typically need a service provider to offer it, and that probably means carriers and alarm companies that are used to doing that kind of thing in the home are going to be some of the big winners here. And then there'll be specialists, so Vivint is a local company here um, whose headquarters is about 200 yards from where I'm sitting right now as it happens, um, that does that. But um, it's... Uh, it's that service model that I think is going to be really interesting and um, Nest obviously doesn't do that for now they've, they've got some subscriptions but they're really doing those as an add-on to really expensive hardware rather than a completely different business model and so I still think it'd be very interesting for them to move more in that direction and their, their CEO who took over from Tony Fidel comes from a background of working with service providers in the set-top box business for example at Motorola and So he seems like an obvious guy to start to forge some of those partnerships and to sort of move that model along. Um, we don't seem to be seeing any signs of that yet with this device. and I think that's the problem. Either you do very expensive devices and the services are basically free, or you do a service and subscription model and then you subsidize or give away the devices for free. You don't kind of combine the two. It doesn't really make sense to do that. Right. And so I think they really struggling needs it right to make now. up yeah they are and they need to make up their minds about which way they're going there um and really get clear about that but um but yeah i mean a fascinating device as i say good sign that things are still moving along at Nest; that they're still capable of some really interesting innovation and i love your point about the ai in the home it feels like a great um a great sort of uh, alternative take on ai in the home and what its role is and and how it can be used. And it leverages you know some of the facial detection stuff that was built at Google, which is another interesting thing because there's been very little cross-pollination between Google and Nest until now. And so it's good to see some of that finally starting to happen, even if they still do have these very separate Google Home and Nest tracks that don't really talk to each other much. Any other thoughts on Nest from you, Aaron, before we wrap that up?
1: No, I, I hope I, I hope there really is more stuff coming. I, and I also, I just want to say one other thing. They they need to add HomeKit support to all their stuff. I just think it's silly that they don't have it. I, I realize that they're owned by Alphabet, and so there's some loyalty there. But I, I just think it. There's no good reason for them. I'm seriously considering, you know, like seeing what I can get for our Nest thermostats, so I can get an Echo B, so it integrates with HomeKit, and um, and there's no good reason for that to be true. Right, I don't. I I just think you know, th- like Google's Google trying to sort of be the, the the main and and single platform for the smart home. I just don't think that's how things are going to evolve. I think there there are going to be some sort of more common protocols, or more likely, there are two or three platforms that mm-hmm. that all smart home devices have to be capable yeah. of working with. That's the trend on all the new smart home stuff that's coming out, and right. it's going to continue to be that way. And. And Nest, if it's going to be its own business, can't be beholden to Google and or to get right. to Google in this weird way. So yeah,
0: and I guess the tricky thing about HomeKit support is it requires specific hardware components and so on, which would require some sort of redesign on the hardware. And not it's not just something you can just decide to add. You have to yeah, re- I get that rebuild the hardware to some extent. So that does make it a bit trickier than some of the other ecosystems that they do play nicely with.
1: Yeah, but there are ways around that, right? I mean, you Mm -hmm. can buy a device that does the bridging for you or anything like that, but Nest seems to have zero interest whatsoever in in, in working with HomeKit, and that just feels really short-sighted
0: to me. Yeah, yeah, good point. Okay, well, speaking of HomeKit and Apple, let's move on to this sort of grab bag of Apple news items from the week. As I said, there was nothing so sort of standout over the past week that felt like it justified its own big conversation, but there's a number of things that are worth touching on briefly. Uh, last Friday, shortly after we recorded last week's News Roundup, there was a story on Bloomberg about Apple uh, developing a dedicated AI chip. Uh, and then this week we've had several uh, news items. Again, Bloomberg reporting that Apple was, had started manufacturing on the Siri speaker, um, sort of suggesting it may or may not be announced next week at WWDC. Uh, Apple itself put out a press release on two different subjects. One was cumulative $70 billion page to developers. Um, since the launch of the App Store and then uh, Swift Playgrounds it's sort of coding education app has now added uh, some sort of real-world hardware uh, support so it does uh, works now with drones and robots and uh, I think musical instruments as well so some interesting set of stuff there. Let's just talk briefly about the AI chip to start with. Obviously Apple's had its own chips in some areas for a long time now we've seen that sort of proliferate over the last couple of years with um, the W1 chip, for example, in the AirPods um, and uh, T1 for the touch bar in and, and the MacBook Pros and, and so on and so forth. You know, So it certainly would be a continuation of a trend, um, but also you know a continuation of another trend, which is Apple taking a slightly different take on AI uh, and making it more device-based and not purely a cloud-based task. Um, and it's interesting we, that Apple was somewhat on its own when it first sort of went in that direction a couple of years ago. And a lot of people sort of skeptical that that could work. And now we're actually seeing Google and others doing more work with doing AI and machine learning and those tasks on the phone. You need to have really specialized and optimized hardware to do that. And Apple's arguably uniquely placed to to spec and build uh, its own uh, chips for that, that purpose. But Aaron, what was kind of your take on this?
1: I think this is something that could be potentially really huge, largely because Apple has demonstrated such a strong capacity for chip design. I mean they, they've the, the H series chip has been a phenomenal accomplishment in the history of computing. And I realize that sounds really <laughs> superlative, but it's true. I mean what they were able to pull off and what they've been able to accomplish with the A series chip and the way it started to spin out into other chips like what like the like what went into the Apple Watch with the S series and then the W series that's gone into AirPods. And, is in, and in the Beats have phones, and it's going to add up in other places, too, maybe even in the rumored Siri speaker. I, I think the AI chip thing is a fascinating one from Apple's perspective because of the, the design prowess that they've been able to demonstrate. My understanding, and I may get an angry listener who says I've got this totally wrong, is that when it comes to neural networks, which is how a lot of AI systems work, more cores is better. And so that's going to be the design difference here is that they can add more cores Um then versus the way they would design, you know, the A series chip for an iPhone, for example. And, and, um, because neural networks just involve like a bunch of decisions kind of down these branching trees that then come back up to tell you, yes, there's a dog in this photo. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and so this is why customized hardware is so important. And if there's any company that's in a really great position in terms of capital available, um, Expertise available. I I just can't think of any company that's better positioned to do this well than Apple right now. Um, Mm -hmm. Google has obviously done some custom chip design for its servers and other things, and that's sort of you know that's that's they do that much more quietly than Apple does with the A series chips because these are in consumer products. But still, I think Apple's really well positioned, and this is a space where you know there's this general perception or narrative that Apple is behind in AI. I think mm-hmm. when it comes to customized chips, uh, Apple is probably, um, based on the evidence that's sort of out there, um, that Apple's probably better positioned than anybody else to do well. Right, as right.
0: far as customized hardware goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely agreed on that. Um, let's move on to this other Bloomberg story about the Siri speaker. I mean, uh, there's a whole separate layer that we could probably should avoid today of a discussion about this, which is triggered by John Gruber and talking about. Um, You know, this piece from Bloomberg which talked about manufacturing starting on the Siri speaker and had very little other detail um, other than that one fact or or reported fact about manufacturing starting. I actually think that's significant because it probably suggests that Apple is getting ready to announce something simply because, um, you know, once you start manufacturing, you've got that much more potential for leaks. And so you kind of want to get an announcement out there so that the leaks are no longer interesting. Um, so it would make sense that they would announce something next week if manufacturing is indeed starting, and supposedly it is, um, and through, I think, Inventec who makes the AirPods as well. Um, you know, fascinating device, and, and we can have a whole conversation about it, and hopefully next week we'll be able to talk about whatever Apple's actually announced or not announced about it. But, uh, you know, I think it's some of the most interesting things to think about is how is this going to be different or the same versus these two other devices that we talk about a lot, you know, the Google Home and Amazon Echo that really started it all. You know, is this going to have a similar form factor? Is this going to look quite different? Is it going to have a screen or not? Sounds like it probably won't have a screen. How will the audio be different? Um, you know, I, I imagine the audio quality will be superior, but how, how good will it be and how will that be achieved in a smallish single device for the home? Um, or will it need multiple of these devices to really kind of pull off the, what it does that's special? Um, and then there's question of pricing. You know, I think this thing's probably going to be $400, $500 if you factor in the fact that Apple isn't trying to drive something else in the way that Amazon and Google are, so it needs to make money on the device itself. You factor in Apple's usual margins on this stuff. Uh, you factor in, um, you know, the fact that it's going to be premium hardware, it's going to be really nice looking, the audio quality would be better. Um, you know, factor in things like AirPlay support and a W1 chip and all the rest of it, and suddenly it adds up quite significantly. So. I could easily see this thing costing four or $500. So lots of fascinating questions, which, as I say, hopefully we'll get some answers to next week. But, Aaron, any thoughts on that series speaker story or the related stuff?
1: Yeah, I I agree that the likelihood seems really high it'll get announced next week. They always pre-announce product categories anyway um, for a yeah. lot of reasons, primarily because they don't have to worry about cannibalizing any sales of existing products. Right. I was telling my wife about this. This is an interesting test case of what, of mm. what might be announced on, on Monday because my wife is she she knows enough about tech that I can tell her about this fascinating thing. Well, it's a thing that I think is fascinating, and <laughs> that she to- tolerates right in conversation. But I was kind of describing the device and what it would do. It was interesting because it put the value proposition to test. Because in our in our kitchen, we have a little you know lightning enabled speaker dock. Mm. That when we're in the kitchen cooking dinner together or whatever, we'll often plug that in and pull up some music, um, run kitchen timers off of it, that kind of a thing. Mm. using hey Siri as right. the you know, as the way we interact, essentially what this device is by other manufacturers, right? I mean, you plug mm. a phone into a speaker dock and with with hey Siri enabled. It's basically one of the whoops I just triggered so ah, there you go. <laughs> How many times have I done that now? <laughs>
0: anyway, yeah, I did it earlier on a different podcast, yeah. Yeah.
1: So anyway, um, <clears throat> but the point is is, you know, what is Apple the question I have is what is Apple potentially going to announce next week that's going to be a different or better value proposition than my iPhone plugged into a speaker dock.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And that's yeah. the big question. And, and better mics and better sound and I realize all that stuff is on the table, yeah, but yeah. But I wonder if it's going to do anything different, and right. and you know this will be a not cheap device. No. I don't, I'm not saying it'll be super expensive, but I could picture it landing at around 300 bucks or something uh-huh. like that. Um, it really makes me wonder, you know, what the core value proposition is going to be. The way it integrates for developers will be really interesting. I'm curious how Apple will manage that. Does it have to pair with uh, with an iPhone to get apps on it? The way the Watch does.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think really there are a lot of angle. yeah,
1: there are a lot of interesting technical questions about this too, as far as you know how extensible it is by third parties. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, a lot of questions. It, I'm you know I always look forward to to this weekend in, in the summer. If it, it feels mm-hmm. like Christmas in the yeah. summertime, so it's fun <laughs> that way.
0: Yeah, it should be fun, and certainly that will be the main focus of uh, of next week's question of the week episode. Um, which we'll probably record on, on Monday afternoon, I would think. Um, just let's round up quickly those last two Apple uh, press releases. The first w- was the announcement that Swift Playgrounds, the coding education app, is uh, extending to some real-world objects and be able to control those with the Swift code. And then the second is the app payout number, which is seventy billion. Uh, and Apple now seems to be on a run rate of about ten billion paid out about every six months, which is really remarkable. Um, you know, in terms of the sort of size of the ecosystem that's grown up. Uh, China is a huge contributor to that, There's some other numbers that came out this week from uh, a VC firm based in the UK about the Chinese gaming market passing the US gaming market, obviously mobile gaming is a big component of that, Tencent as a, an individual company is a huge component of that in turn, so interesting questions about how much Tencent is contributing to that, or how much of that 10 billion every 6 months Tencent is taking in, um, but lots of interesting stuff there, Ian, what was your take on those items?
1: Um, I, they, you, you've said this before and a bunch of other people have said this too, but it's worth mentioning now. These both feel like announcements that should have been made on Monday, which tells me we might be in store for a really crowded keynote on Monday. Yeah. Cause both of these are the sort of things and, and granted, they're both going to get mentions on Monday, but sure. they're not going to spend any more time on it than a mention. Whereas in a less crowded keynote year or in a less crowded developer conference year, they could have taken up five or 10 minutes each. You know, they would have, they could have with the payouts, for example, they could have highlighted new developers, entirely new businesses or companies that have started based on the, the Apple, the iOS platform, you know, in, in the cute factor of being able to show some kid learning how to program a drone flying in a pattern or, you Mm -hmm. know, or a little robot rolling around on the floor. Like, like that's, that's got a really strong appeal and messaging just how great this whole ecosystem can be. And, and, and they wouldn't have pre-announced any of that uh if they were going to be doing very much of that kind of stuff on stage next week so Mm, yeah i'm excited about the swift playgrounds thing my oldest son just got he just has been saving up and just got an ipad and has been Mm. spending a lot of time in swift playgrounds and and uh has had some mobile development classes and stuff like that and i think this would be he also took a robotics class and loved it and so i think there's Yeah, so I think there's something coming together in our household soon. As far as that goes, I have to do yeah. research on what the oh, best great. thing to get would be. But, right. but that sort of stuff is just awesome. You know, I, I, I think uh, I think increasing the, the tech literacy and especially the programming literacy of people generally is, is just a benefit because you don't know who the next, you know, Einstein is
0: out there when it comes to, right. you know, the new app idea or whatever.
1: So, yeah, yeah, yeah. very cool stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm a big fan of Swift Playgrounds. I think it's it does a unique combination really well, which is teaching computational thinking and teaching an actual coding language. There's so much right. coding education out there that either does one or the other, that purely teaches you how to yeah. write a specific language without telling you the sort of uh, ways of thinking around it, or that purely teaches an abstract and doesn't actually get to a real language you can actually use. And I think Swift Playgrounds is, is unique in that it teaches the, the, how you think Uh, computationally, but also teaches an actual coding language that you can use to build real apps. Um, And it's the same language that you use inside Swift Playgrounds, so it's really unique in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I I absolutely agree on your keynote point. I mean, I'm just putting together a a possible piece for early next week right now on the content of, of both Apple's previous WWDCs keynotes, but also the other three developer keynotes we've had over the last few weeks. Uh, From you know, Google and Microsoft and Facebook and it's remarkable how much stuff is in there And each of those other companies now has at least two keynotes Apple still has just the one and it's pretty strictly two hours Uh, Two years ago, they went slightly over because of the Apple music segment, but uh, you know It's pretty strictly under two hours And that means they have to be pretty ruthless about cutting stuff out and two years ago They felt like they were way rushed and tried to cram too much stuff in And I think they really learned from that and the feedback they got last year it was very much a a very structured keynote was lots of i'm going to tell you 10 things about this and i'm going to tell you 10 things about that and kind of pulled out some stuff did pre-announce some stuff so i think that they're applying that same strategy this year Um, but as you say may also be a sign that there's extra stuff in there and over the last couple of years they've obviously had to add watch os they've added tv os they've had deep dives on things like apple watch uh, sorry not apple watch apple uh, music uh, which, you know, uh, something they didn't have to talk about before. And so if they have a Siri speaker or something, then that's going to eat into, you know, the hour or so that they usually devote to iOS, for example. So it's going to be a lot to talk about, even if they don't announce a Siri speaker, but especially if they do have a new product category to talk about as well. Yeah,
1: it's crazy. I can't think of a keynote, a, a developer keynote we've been coming up on where I feel so in the dark about what's going to happen mm. next week. Yeah, so it's yeah. been. A while it's exciting since in that it's way. Been this I think right. it's, it's, it is. It's
0: kind of boring sometimes. So, I mean, there's always details <laughs> that are missing, and specifically sure. how Apple will frame it, which is always interesting in its own right. But uh, you know, the, it feels like with so many major announcements lately, we've had so many details ahead of time, and you know, it feels like we don't for next week. And you know, there's this is the first one where we're going to see at least some hardware and MacBooks and iPads seem like a guarantee almost for next week. Right. But, You know, the Siri speaker too. It could be a really big hardware year for the first time in ages. Yeah. so it would be interesting to see that okay well let's wrap it up there um, thanks everybody for listening as I say next week we'll certainly do a deep dive on Apple's WWDC announcements early in the week and then we'll have our usual roundup episode of the other tech news from the week uh, probably on Friday so thanks for listening uh, have a great weekend and we look forward to being with you again next week bye bye